and 31. 2 Samuel 15 says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call them and say, From what city are you? And when he had said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Verse 30 says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsels of Ahithophel into foolishness. Let's pray. My Father, Lord, we just thanks for this chance just to gather at the beginning of the week but just to worship you, to see how you work in people's lives, to see children worshiping you. You say children are a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. So Lord, I pray you should help us this morning as we just look at your word and the narrative of the story and how you work in individuals' lives, that you just remove every distraction. God, help us to hear from you. And thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Every family has a history. Every family has a story. There's some narrative that uh, is being told, and, and we see that often this time of year. Everybody starts talking about stories. Everybody talks about narratives. Everybody talks about the story of Jesus. And then you get these letters in the mail um, from people you haven't seen all year, and they write you their story about how wonderful their life is. There's that, that perfect family that sends you the perfect family Christmas card. Um, kind of like this. We all hate these people. That uh, They have their perfect little family. They look good. They're on the beach. That's their Christmas story. That's the story they want to tell. And not every family has that story. Some stories and some pictures of the family are a little bit different. And they do strange things, strange histories like this family. That's a story right there. That is, uh, that's a story. Somebody did something really wrong to that dad to convince him that this was a good idea for their Christmas picture. And then other families have different stories. Uh, it gets even worse. They think that's a good idea, and they want to send that to you. This is your narrative that the story 
And some of them aren't even that perfect. Some of them are just strange stories like this, and you get this, and you get the Outback guy. He just does not want to be there. He is uh, not sure whose family he's from, but he does not really want to be there. That is the stories of families. That's the story of all of our families. If we were to put our picture, our Christmas picture, whatever we want to present out there, come back and say, David, Absalom has taken the hearts of Israel. The people are now for Absalom. And instead of David standing and fighting and defending, it says that he, in verse 14 of chapter 15, and then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is a very sad family picture. This is a very dysfunctional family. This is not the Christmas letter that you want to write about how your year went. My sons decided to take the kingdom... I'm fleeing. He stole the hearts of the people. Absalom's a mess. David's shaken. But you, you might ask, how is this possible? How is this king of Israel? How is he so shaken by his son Absalom that he's, that he's fleeing Jerusalem after all the years and all the time and all the things and the struggle that he's been through? Why is he getting shaken like this? Because just like every story and every family and every narrative, there's always more to the story. There's always more to the story than just what you can tell. And there was a very deep inner narrative, a deep story that was going on in David's life. David is seen leaving and climbing up the mountain in verse 30, weeping. It, 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 there takes some time. He has all these people come through him. They basically try to get out of Jerusalem. They have all these people say, I'm with you or I'm not with you, and we're all leaving. Let's get out of here quickly. And they all leave. If you read the, the chapter, all these different people come up, and David, they, the, the priests want to bring the ark out, and David says, no, leave the ark there. If God's for me, he'll be for me. If not, we'll, we'll see what's taking place. So they leave the ark in Jerusalem, and David is leaving his kingdom. And he's weeping as he climbs up the Mount of Olives. Why? How did all this happen? Why would David be this way? What's going on maybe in his mind? I think David is walking up, crying. He knows what's going on. David understands the consequences of sin. He remembers back in chapter 12 when he sinned with Bathsheba that God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And he says, David was afraid he was going to die. He should have died for committing adultery. He should have died for murder had they followed the law. But Nathan says to David, David, you're not going to die. But there will be the sword in your family for generations. And David is climbing up the Mount of Olives, running from his son. Because he understands that this is the consequences of sin. This is part of the consequences of sin in his life. 
And there is truth that there are consequences to sin in our lives and in your lives. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And someone said this, this is, here's, here's how God's economy works. Every day, you are harvesting what you previously planted, and every day you're planting what you will someday harvest. And David was experiencing this. This whole chapter, God's not really mentioned much in these next few chapters. Because God said, hey, this is what happened. David, this is going to be the judgment on you. These are going to be the consequences from your sin. And David is now carrying the cup of his consequences. And God's not going to be mocked. And he's not going to be mocked in your life either. As you wrap up 2014. But what does it, what does it mean? What does it not mean when we suffer consequences? It doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens to us is payback from a previous deed. Every time you go through something bad doesn't mean, as a believer, as a Christian, that you're, being, you're suffering the consequences from, from sin. Not every bad thing that happens to us is payback. Because we all live in a broken world. We're all actually suffering the consequences of the first sin of Adam and Eve. And we, we live in a broken world, so pain happens to us. And we perpetuate pain to people. But not every time something bad is happening to you doesn't mean it's payback. But what it does mean is that we cannot see sin as a small thing. Sin has consequences. Sin will, as someone said, take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay always. David was feeling this. I think this passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel is some of the most fascinating the whole David account. All the struggle that he goes through. All of this. All because of the consequences of sin. It says in 2 Samuel 12 that David could have asked God for anything and God would have given it to him. But David chose sin. He chose women. He chose to kill a husband. He chose to do everything wrong. And God said, David, if you had just asked me for anything, I'd have given it to you. But he didn't. He chose sin. And so he's suffering now the consequences of sin. And, and so will we. Not every time you sin, though, not every time you deal with pain, is it a consequence from sin. If you're struggling, if you're in a difficult time right now, and you know that it's not because of sin, you know it's not because of you, things are right between you and God, but you are still suffering. The Bible says if you struggle, your response to that kind of struggle, James says, is to count it all joy when you face various trials. Because your faith is being tested and strengthened. And it's God's grace on you. So if you're going through a difficulty right now, you say, it's not because of my sin. I'm not doing anything wrong, but why are you doing this to me, God? God's not doing anything to you. He's giving you something. He's strengthening your faith. He's giving you grace to make you and conform you to be more like Jesus Christ. So don't, don't regret that at all. Rejoice in that, actually, the Bible says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials when it's not because of sin. You're going to come out better. It's going to be because it's to make you stronger 
to make you Christ-like. But that's not, in this situation, what David was going through. David was suffering the consequences of his sin. His, his son wanted to kill him. And if his son went, that's, that's how a coup happened. The king had to die. And anybody who was else, the, the son of the king had to die. So little Solomon, who's 10 years old, he was going to die if Absalom's coup went through. And, and David knew that pain could happen, and pain was going to happen, and he's crying as he walks up the Mount of Olives. He said, well, what about forgiveness, Paul? Didn't God forgive David? Why is he struggling But the truth is, God has forgiven David. But forgiveness does not always remove the consequences. It restores the relationship. But forgiveness doesn't always remove the consequences. So why do we suffer the consequences for sin? Hebrews 12.6 says, Who God loves, he chastens. And when God chastens us, we endure consequences. And I think there's three reasons why we, after we sin, we can be forgiven, but we still sometimes will suffer the consequences of our sin. And we still have to deal with those consequences. Why is that? If God's so good and God's so loving, why does he give us the consequences of our sin? Because it demonstrates the evil of sin. Sin is evil. It costs God a lot to deal with sin. And when we suffer the consequences, it is, it is showing us that this, this is serious stuff when we sin. When we wander off from where God wants us, that's serious. And it, it demonstrates the, the evilness of sin. It demonstrates that God does not take sin lightly. And it develops in the forgiven person. It develops in you and it develops in me humility and Christlikeness. When you sin and you suffer the consequences of it and God lets you live and deal with those consequences, it, it, it humbles you. And it makes you more like Jesus Christ. And if you're really repentant, if you're genuinely repentant, that's what you're going to want. And if you're suffering consequences from sin and say, I'm forgiven, I'm supposed to not have this, then you might not have been repentant. Because if you're genuinely repentant, and God allows you to be humbled by the consequences, it's going to hurt, but you're going to know that this is for my good and for God's glory. And he's making me more like Christ. And it's a demonstration, actually. It's in the grace to us. It's a proof of genuine repentance in our lives. See, David's sin had lasting effects. My favorite movie of all times is It's a Wonderful Life. I always try to work it in once during the Christmas season. My favorite lines in that movie is when George Bailey is all upset with his life, and Clarence, the angel, says to him, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. That's a reality. When we sin, we are not islands off to ourselves. It affects all of us. And David was suffering this. This is what this whole passage is for chapters. It's just suffering and the, the, the consequences of sin, even to a forgiven person. But you know what? David's very good in this situation. The other times when David struggled, he was struggling. But this time, if you go to the Psalms and read all the different Psalms that David wrote when Absalom was in Jerusalem and David was outside Jerusalem, spiritually, David's life was strong. 
If you were to take a picture of his life from the outside, he would look like he was a mess. There would be chaos, there would be mess, there would be problems, problems, problems on the outside. But inside, if you read the Psalms that David wrote, as he went through this time of consequences, he's unbelievably spiritually strong. So he was crying, I believe, as he walked up the Mount of Olives because of the consequences of sin. But because David was trusting in God, he was crying. He had had compassion as a father. This was his son that he fed as a baby, that he watched walk, that he taught how to shoot an arrow, showed him how to use a slingshot. And this was his boy who was stealing the people from him, stealing the kingdom away from him. So I think his tears were filled with the reality of the consequences of sin, but also deep compassion for Absalom. When you get to 2 Samuel 19, at the height of the civil war, David says, don't kill my boy. And Absalom comes running through the forest. His hair is flying in the wind. And he gets caught on a low-hanging tree. And his horse flies off. And he's dangling in the air by his hair. And they come up. And some men say, no, the king said not to kill him. And Joab says, I don't care. And he kills him. And when David hears about it, he mourns and he cries, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, oh, that I had died instead of you. David was a compassionate father, but how could he be that way? Because he knew his son wanted to kill him. How could David be compassionate to his enemy? How could he do it? That's the inner narrative of what was going on. But there is, he could do it because there is an unbelievably available narrative that David knew about and David chose to follow. David put himself in God's hand. When the Bible says that he took the ark out and David said, no, keep the ark in Jerusalem. God, David said, you know what? I'm putting my Life in God's hands. I'm going to let God deal with me. If he brings me back to Jerusalem, he brings me back. If he doesn't, so be it. But I'm going to trust in God more than my own political scheming and masterful art of war. He was trusting in God because David knew something that we know even better. So this time, things are, things are bad for David. But they are not as bad. And they they may be bad for you, but they are not as bad as they used to be. Things are not as bad as they used to be, even for David. Because David had nobody to to comfort him. When he he was mourning for Absalom, nobody in the passage says, nobody comes up to him and says, hey, it's going to be okay. I'll I'll help you out, David. It's going to be okay. Nobody says that to David because there was nobody who could comfort David. David was the king. And that was it. There was nobody to comfort David. He was the king. So things were bad for David. But they're not as bad for us. Because you can't read... 2 Samuel 30, and hear about the king walking up the Mount of Olives and remembering that another king, a greater king, also walked up the Mount of Olives. 
weeping. Jesus is the greater king. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born in a lowly manger, became the king that years later would walk up the same Mount of Olives and he'd look at Jerusalem, he'd do the exact same thing, and he would weep over it. And there was nobody to comfort him as well because he was going to have to take all the wrath of God for our sin. And when Jesus did that for us, when Jesus went to the cross, when he suffered, when our greater king Jesus died on the cross, things may have been bad for David, but they're much better now for us. So whatever you're going through right now, you have it, we have it because of Jesus much better than David had. It's good now. Because all wrongs, because of what Jesus did, will be made right. Justice will happen someday. Things will be turned around. And things have been turned around. Your sin can be forgiven, completely forsaken, as far as the east is from the west. We have a greater king who came, and we have a greater king who conquered. David didn't have that. But we do. When we struggle It is God's grace on us to overcome difficulty. God forgave us. So we just need to go through the difficulties and put our hands in God's hands. John Newton, who I love, lived 200 years ago, wrote the song Amazing Grace. He was well known for writing letters, and he'd write hundreds of letters. And somebody wrote him one time, and they're just struggling with life, struggling with the difficulty, struggling with the consequences of sin, and just trying to beating himself up. And John Newton was always good at saying, yes, you need to look at sin, you need to take sin very serious, because sin has consequences. But just as serious as sin has consequences, you need to look at the grace of God and see how powerful the grace of God is in because of Jesus. We have a great king who conquered our sin and gives us the hope to overcome it. And he wrote this to this person. He said, you say you find it hard to believe that it's compatible with the divine purity to embrace or employ such a monster as yourself. In thinking this, you express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He sometimes offers to teach us humility, but though I wish to be humble, I desire not to learn in this school. His premises perhaps are true, that we are vile, wretched creatures. But then he draws an abominable conclusions from them and would teach us that therefore we ought to question either the power or the willingness or the faithfulness of Christ. Indeed, though our complaints are good, so far as they spring from a dislike of sin, yet when we come to examine them closely, there is often so much self-will, self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience mingle with them that they are little better than the worst evils we can complain of. You have not... You cannot have anything in the sight of God but what you derive from the righteousness and atonement of Jesus. If you could keep him more constantly in view, you would be more comfortable. He would be more honored. Let us pray that we may be enabled to follow the apostles, or rather the Lord's command by him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. We have little to rejoice in ourselves, but we have right and reason to rejoice in him. Things are much better 
than they used to be because of Jesus. So when you are struggling and you're carrying the weight of the consequence of sin, or you're carrying the struggle of just the refining of God, look to Jesus. Look at what he did at the cross. Look what it cost God to kill him on the cross. Look at the pain that he suffered, and look at the resurrection. Look what he did for us. Focus on Jesus and rejoice, because we have a great greater king who came for us because of his great love. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And our lives are turned around. Our Christmas letters are happier and better, even in the midst of pain. When we see Jesus for who he is and glory in it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Remind